Welcome to the Paycheck to Profit podcast, where your host, Robert Johnson, connects with individuals using their spare moments, improving their lifestyle by converting their paychecks into profits. Yo, what's up? Thanks for joining the Paycheck to Profit podcast. I'm your host, Robert Johnson. And today we get the pleasure to meet with Jeff Smith. This guy is a powerhouse. He is a leader in the sub two community. He shares a lot of his time weekly to support other investors, new and experienced. He's literally helped hundreds, if not thousands of people improve their sales techniques and just overall communication skills. So today we're going to hear from Jeff about his path and how he went from a cushy W2 into a full-time real estate investor and coach and hopefully glean a few tips on some of his best sales techniques. Jeff, thanks for being here and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for hosting me. It's It's been a long journey, but yeah, I'm glad to be here and share some insight with your audience. Awesome. Yeah, well, uh, why don't we kick it off to you? Just kind of share a little bit of brief background about what your W2 was, uh, how long ago you left, things like that, and then we can jump into some details. Yeah, so here's the Reader's Digest. I went to school for engineering, went to work for an oil and gas construction contractor, found my way to the Middle East for a few years and padded my wallet. So when I got back, I had joined a, it was the sales team, but it wasn't traditional sales. It was more like receiving requests for proposals and then leading the team on the estimating and transmitting the proposal back and negotiating contracts. So not truly sales insofar as real estate, what we typically think about. So while I was in this position, I started to realize I had more capacity in the tank. There was additional things I could be doing. And so I started looking for side hustles, basically. And I found my way into real estate and rental properties, thought it was a neat idea, went to a handful of seminars, plugged away at them. We bought a few rentals and invested in a multifamily. And then after a couple of years of this, I had a virtual assistant who was cold calling a variety of lists. And we found our first land development deal, which I didn't even know what that was at the point at the time. But basically, she tracked down a family who had two acres to sell. And because of some things I had learned, I was able to find a local developer. And long story short, we assigned this piece of land. And we made the biggest assignment fee we've ever done, which was 200 grand. Whoa. And so with that, <laughs> it was the springboard of kind of, look, it's now or never. I do have this cushy W-2 and it's paying me 100K a year. All right. I wasn't making a small amount of money. And so now it's the, it, now it's the question of, do I stay with a good life? Because it was good. There was not that much to complain about. Or do I roll the dice, take the risk that there are greater things I can achieve? And that was not a easy decision. So decided to do that. That happened about three years ago. And so I've been in real estate full-time ever since, pursuing house flips, other land projects, and now starting to coach people on sales as well. So that is my story. Wow. Wow. Um, you know, we haven't actually talked a lot individually. Um, I think I've only seen you in calls and, you know, like I've heard a lot of your like high level story, but I didn't realize you were in the Middle East and, and also that it was, this was only three years ago. Like it's not that much time, you know, and from what you've been able to do and what you just told everybody is, is pretty incredible within three years time. Um, 
one thing I would say that just kind of blew my mind was that land contract, the assignment being 200 grand. And one of my questions for you was what gravitated you towards land? And I think, you know, that kind of answers my question, but, you know, is there something more to it? With my engineering background, the development projects are just far more enjoyable. I personally don't like the whole HGTV model of we're going to beautify this kitchen and we're going to redo the bathrooms with granite. I look at it and go, I don't care. I truly don't. But I like the idea of seeing a piece of land of 20, 50, 100 acres and saying, what is the technical layout of what this thing is going to look like? And so I, I talk about this in my own sales group as I say, look, your compensation is directly correlated with the magnitude of the problem that you are solving. And so for this particular family, they were getting called all the time by wholesalers left and right who had no idea what to do about this thing. The wholesalers were treating it as a fix and flip, and so they couldn't get any pricing higher. But when I saw an opportunity in a different manner and brought the right buyer along who could actually do something with this, then my compensation is, is super high. And so part of the reason is because of the money, like that is pretty amazing, but it is kind of a two-edged sword. I may have the opportunity to make an incredible amount of money on assignments from a land deal, but it may take north of six months from the point of contract to close it. So it's not something that is you necessarily want to be your first entrance into real estate. If I'm hitting grand slams all the time, you can't win the game. You have to get the singles and doubles. Right. Yeah. So you you probably uh, balance, and I've heard a little bit about this from other people that that we both know. But um, but you are doing some wholesaling and, like you said, fix and flips as well. So those are the singles and doubles that you're hitting just to keep you going throughout that time period when you have a land development deal. Correct. And it's not like I'm not even saying that, you know, hitting singles and doubles is a bad thing. It's great to have multiple projects going where I'm locking up. I'm I'm the only closer on my team right now. I'm kind of a a one man show on the lead gen, lead management and closer side will eventually get more people. But even just by myself, I can consistently get one to three deals per week. And then I have a partner who handles the dispo. And then another partner who handles all the systems and makes sure everything's just kind of generally overseeing that everything is flowing correctly. So if a deal a week is coming in and your average assignment fee is $15,000, for example, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, if you can do some rehabs as well and double that money to 30 grand a week, well, just multiply that by 52 real fast. That's nothing to sneeze at. Right. Yeah. No, that's amazing. And uh, the fact that you're doing it mostly by yourself as a, you know, like a single operator, like you said, lead gen all the way through closing. What does that, what does that look like? Like what lists are you pulling right now? So what we are doing at the moment is what's is called PPL or pay per lead. And so for anybody in your audience, who's not aware of what that means, essentially there are companies out there who will generate leads through their own inbound marketing direct mail, their website, SEO, whatever. And and these leads come into their website and then they essentially sell it to you at some fee. And so we can have that source. So we have two different groups that we buy leads from. 
And then we've also started our own PPC system, which does take a while to get nailed down as the developers have to tinker around with things and get it dialed in. We have managed to get a contract out of that, and I'm hoping there are two more that we're going to be getting from that. So that's really cool. And then we also do some outbound marketing on the probate side. That's something we're still trying to get improvement on. We used to be full bore cold calling. I had five VAs at one point who were doing it. But because me and 20 million of my closest friends are calling, it really lost its effectiveness. And so we retooled our model when we really decided to dive back into this. Okay. And how long ago was that, that you made the change? So the change happened probably a year and a half ago where we had made the change from wholesaling to specifically land because the opportunity was so high, the interest rates were so low. Then when the interest rates changed, and in particular, the bond rates changed, the development projects were no longer viable. And quite a few of my deals I had locked up fell out, which sucks. And so we, we, we got back together and said, look, this is part of dealing with the market. Okay, you know, our lives are not over, life will go on, but we do need to pivot with what the market has done. So we reinvigorated the single family wholesaling business, got that lit up as fast as we could. And typically what you find if you try and initiate a direct mail campaign, it takes several months for that to get going. So we just started with a PPL who had essentially already been doing this. So we were rocking and rolling about three weeks later, we had our first contract. So that's how you're able to pick up pretty fast. So if we want to expand into Dallas, for example, that's what we would do. Okay. Yeah. So is the, is the PPL, the company that you're using, is it pretty competitive as far as like who you're going up against? Are you bidding on deals like that or leads? Yes. That's the way the system works. It shows you really by county what a lead will typically cost. So in certain counties where maybe that group is not marketing a lot or just nobody's interested, maybe you can buy leads for 50 bucks. You go somewhere highly competitive like a Phoenix or Las Vegas, you can be looking anywhere from 400 to $500 a lead. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I don't want to jump the gun, but, uh, but ultimately it comes down to if you get a lead like that, comes down to your ability to close, right? I was kind of going to wait a little bit, but let's just jump into it. Let's let's talk about how your approach uh, differs from others and maybe some tips that you can share. Right. And so we'll, we'll dive into that. And, you know, what I want to point out, I'm sure people freaked out and they're like 400 to $500, like who would pay for this? <laughs> well, some of it comes down to what we KPIs, and this will make sense in the context of sales. But if you're doing outbound marketing, typically what you'll find is for every 50 leads you generate, you probably get one contract. In a lot of cases, it's even worse than that. Maybe it's all the way up to 100, which is painful. When you're doing PPL and inbound marketing, now the ratio is more like for every 15 leads you generate, you can get a contract. That's Mm. typically the average. I'm doing a batting average right now of about 10 to 12 because I am that aggressive on chasing after opportunities. And then also there are conditions where you get refunds on that $400 if you spend it. Like if they already had it listed on the MLS, you can get a refund for stuff like that. So, you know, and then you just multiply it out. It's like, well, if it only took me 12 leads and it's 4,800 bucks, but I do a fix and flip and make $35,000 off of it. Am I really concerned? (laughs) Right. The ROI is there. And that's the full cycle that people don't understand. So that being said, 
on the sales portion of it. Mostly it's about getting on the phone as fast as I can. That's rule number one. Rule number two is that I need to treat this instead of me treating myself like a salesman and how can I find the motivation and all the rest of it. I have a mindset of I'm a real estate doctor. This is a patient who has walked into my clinic with a problem. And I need to ask the right questions in order to figure out where they're hurting so that when I write a prescription for the treatment plan, it actually lines up with what they've experienced. And what too many people do is they're going through this laundry list of questions and they don't even know what they're searching for. They don't know what the symptoms are and therefore they don't know what the disease is and therefore they don't know the prescription. So they're asking a bunch of questions, hoping that the seller will say, I want to sell at a drop dead price because all this stuff and people just don't talk that way. So that's why I teach people, let's learn what the diseases are that people are ailing from in their properties. Let's talk about what those symptoms are. And then let's talk about how to ask quality questions that actually produce this. Because if you keep doing what you're doing with asking bed, bath, count, age, of roof, and all this other gobbledygook, <laughs> that's not what tells you. Right. Dude, I love the analogy. Um, and I've heard you actually say that before, but you know, the doctor and going and checking what are the symptoms? How can you how can you actually find out what the issue is? And so I'm curious what you what your thoughts are. What are some of the better questions that you could ask to get those symptoms to come to light? Right. So th to start, there's really two different types of questions that I teach very early on. The first type is a fact-finding question. The second type is what's known as a problem question. Most people, when they get started, are asking fact-finding questions. How many beds is it? How long have you owned it? Is it vacant? What are you making money on on the lease? Where are you in relation to the property? It's like if regardless of where you are and regardless of what the seller feels about the property, it is still just true or false, yes or no. This is the fact of the matter. Whether you're on a phone call or you're sitting in a courtroom, I'm getting the same answer. But a problem question is now directed at are you happy with the current situation? Are you dissatisfied with what's going on? Is there a challenge that you're facing? And now my focus is no longer on the fact. It's where do you feel the pain is truly happening? So here's an example of what I mean by that. This is an analogy I use in my course all the time. Let's imagine that I was speaking with somebody about a home security system. Here's the questions. There's going to be three. And notice the difference. Question one. Is the security system impacting your bottom line? Question two, how much money does the security system impact your bottom line? And three, are you concerned about the security system impacting your bottom line? Yes, it impacts my bottom line. Yes, it's a hundred bucks a month. That's the best money I've ever spent. Right? That's, but sometimes that's awesome. we assume. Yeah, but sometimes we assume that just because factually it affects them and factually it costs money, well, certainly that's the issue. No, we're asking different things. So what I tell everybody, and this is the takeaway, you can do this immediately. Instead of asking these what questions, start asking, what is the concern you have about the property? What is it about the tenants that has gotten under your skin? 
What is it about the vacancy that you are most dissatisfied about? What is it about the condition that's really bothering you? Those questions, those keywords now put the priority on the seller and they can start telling you, this is what I don't like. That is motivation, not how many bedrooms it has. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. And for those that are actually watching, I, you can probably tell that I'm taking notes because this is great information. And I would highly encourage you if you didn't, or if you can rewind, go listen to this again, take notes and start executing. So this is going to help you in a lot of situations. This is not just go for real estate sales. It's just about being good communicator. Exactly yeah. right. Like this skill set applies in so many different spots. It's not just a single family house. Like what about your private money lenders? They have problems. They have concerns. You can ask these questions and stand out in the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. You got some gold here, man. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, so we've got the paper lead that comes in. You're running about 10 to 12 leads per deal that you're getting uh, under contract. You take a different approach from others. So your, your batting average is a little bit higher. And I think one thing that you called out at the very beginning was the speed to the getting on the phone with the seller. So probably the two big takeaways are speed to seller communication and asking better questions, which there's a lot that goes into that, but we just covered that. So definitely, like I said, rewind if you need to listen to that again. Um, but if you can get be the first one to call and you are asking the right questions, you're going to have a higher chance of success there. Yeah, uh, unquestionably, because yeah. you are you are appearing so much different than everyone else. Most people, when they start in real estate investing, they get their little script and they don't even understand what they're wielding. So when I teach people, I'm like, I'm not just teaching you a script. Like you can have your script. It's fine. Let me teach you to understand what these questions sound like. Because if you know what the questions sound like, and again, you know what the diseases are, now you can have a better experience listening to what the lead actually says instead of going through your script. Because here's the problem. Your seller didn't get a copy of the script. Like, <laughs> wait a second. You weren't supposed to say that line. That doesn't come until section three. What the hell? And then they hang up on you. So that's what we avoid. Nice. Did um, so With this strategy that you have and these techniques, did you come up with this or was this uh, something that you learned when you were sales and engineering or is it a mixture of both? What happened? Like, how did you come to this kind of technique? Right. This isn't something that was taught in the oil and gas sales because that was more responding to RFPs and just leading the estimating crew. It's not true sales in, in, the, in that sense. The way I ended up learning this was, well, one, that $200,000 assignment I was talking about, I was staring at it. And at the time, I didn't know how to close them. I didn't know how to get this person under contract successfully. I was terrified of it. So I went to another sales trainer, Steve Trang, who runs a sales coaching group, got what I needed, got the structure I needed. But even from that, and this is not to tear down Steve at all, because he does a fantastic job. I still didn't feel like I truly understood what good questions sounded like. So when we talk about the motivation funnel or the pain funnel that's described in Sandler, I'm still thinking to myself, I don't know what the questions are that bring me down. I just don't get it for some reason. And so there are several other sales books out there. Sandler is probably the most well-known. 
can't teach a kid to write a to ride a bike at a seminar. Great book. You should absolutely pick it up. But the one that I really was drawn to, and I'm not sure if it was because I'm just an engineer brain or the description just worked for me, was the book Spin Selling by Neil Rackham. And spin selling really contemplates what these questions should be sounding like and why they work. And the reason that probably a lot of people don't read this one is because it's written like a research thesis paper. If you go into like a chemistry lab and read somebody's report and you see all these charts and graphs, it looks very similar to that. There are corresponding statistics and evaluations on why certain things work. And that just clicked with me. And so I started also using the workbook and started to plug in what these questions are. And as I did that, it started, I started to see the pattern of this is what a problem question sounds like. So that when I started my own coaching business, I could say, look, I can distill this into a way that's so much easier to comprehend and get you going so much faster by using the keywords. What is the challenge? What is the concern, the dissatisfaction? You don't quite find that in the book, but after experience, like this is what I can plug and play right away. And so a lot of my students have had success with that. But yeah, long story short, I'm a big fan of the School of Sales of Sandler. There's a lot of great things there. Um, the only thing I think it could improve with is what spin selling does, which is the types of questions. But spin selling doesn't truly contemplate the entirety of the sales process. And I think Sandler, particularly the Sandler submarine, does a better job of just looking at the 10,000 foot view and spin gets into the nitty gritty of what good questioning sounds like. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I've heard of a couple of those books. I'm definitely going to check out spin selling. Uh, sounds like I, I've, I'm not an engineer by trade, but I have a brain that I think kind of ties along with that. So <laughs> I think I would enjoy that. Yeah. Um, the one thing I pulled out of that though is that you had a you got to a, a block, right? You got to a spot where you're like, I don't know what to do. You went, you found somebody, Steve Trang, that you could learn from. And then you didn't stop there, you took it further. And I think what I really like and appreciate is that you have like the growth mindset where you're continually learning and you're continually adapting. So I've heard it you know, as you speak throughout this conversation is that you are adapting to the market. You are constantly learning and adjusting what your strategies are. And it's vital to be successful in not just real estate, but anything. And the one thing I, I, I know I wanted to ask you about is the coaching program that you're putting together and how that kind of ties in. So now you're you're getting to a point now where you've you've become kind of the master the master jedi of you know the the sales technique so you want to help other people you do it for free in the sub2 community all the time but you're you're starting your own more intimate group as my understanding if you want to share a little bit about that i'd love to hear more about what you're doing there yeah i mean i have i have always genuinely enjoyed teaching and instructing people even when i was in the middle east there were some site project engineers and i was i was the project engineer on the site but there were some other ones there and after a while i started coaching them in various calculations and using certain computer programs and i genuinely enjoyed it and they got really good and it was very helpful for the project 
And so I've, I've always enjoyed, you know, presenting and then talking with people and helping them grow. Within other communities, though, the issue is I enjoy coaching and teaching, but I don't necessarily have a commitment of people. So I might be rehashing a lot of the early principles over and over again. What I would really like to do is pour into a smaller group and watch them improve over time, right? And keep augmenting them that way. And so that's really why I created this group. And I've got about 40 some students right now, and wow. they are getting very good, very fast. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. I actually like beta tested this about a year ago on about six people. They really enjoyed it. One of them, most of them are just crushing it right now. They're getting several contracts, did another version with about a dozen, probably six months later. And, and now I'm actually re-recording a lot of the content, making right. it more concise and bite-sized. And that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have a name for your group? So the Facebook group is very eloquently called uh, Real Estate Closer School with Coach Jeff. I'm going through a bit of a rebranding, so I'm kind of, I'm figuring out what I'll eventually call it. <laughs> it's a working title. <laughs> it's a working title. But okay. you know exactly what it is as soon as you hear it. It's pretty straightforward. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So that's cool. I mean, you've got up to 40 people now. That's that's awesome. And uh, what, does that, what does it look like in your program, like week to week or how often do you meet, things like that? Yeah, so there's really three main components if you want to be part of the group. The first component is the video course itself, where I walk you through, here's exactly how I learned it. I'm not making you do something I didn't do. Like, I went through these exercises. This is the content I want you to understand. Here are the personality types. Here's what these questions sound like. Here's how to make them your own. Here's why they work and why they don't work. Here's how you have your closing discussion. So we go through all of that content and video. The second part is the call vault. And what a lot of other uh, coaching groups do is they'll have kind of one-off calls. You know, this is what a follow-up call sounds like. This is what a cold call sounds like. Here's what a contract sounds like. And go, oh my God, I did something different. And I decided I don't want this kind of scattershot thing. I always wanted like the full saga, like, cool, yeah. you did a cold call. Well, what was the next call like? How did you set up the offer call? And he never seemed to get it. So in my call vault, it's here's all the deals I got under contract. And here it is from call number one, all the way to call five or eight or 50 or whatever the hell it took. So you can hear the entire saga of how I set it up and advance the conversation forward. So I was actually really, my, my students were just thrilled to death when they heard I was doing that. So got all that oh, yeah. call vault. And then the third portion is we have Zooms twice a week on Monday and Wednesday evening. And what we'll typically do is I'll go over a special topic and then we'll have Q&A call calibration. Last night, actually, we had one of my first students, Andrew Ariaga, who's doing direct to agent, who's doing a ton of deals. And, you know, he got to talk about here are the lessons learned on DTA. Here's what I deployed from Jeff's program. Here's why it worked. Here's what I'm continuing to do. And like, he's, he's still making improvements or adjustments. And, you know, very graciously, he said, dude, like so much of the success is because of what Jeff taught me, like asking questions and personality types, like do the work. That's what it takes. And, you know, later on, we'll get into some more focused sessions as well. So it's, it's been a great experience. The, the group keeps growing, uh, which, which is, 
fantastic and, and humbling. Yeah, no, I, I love that setup too. You know, it, like you said, a lot of people or courses have certain components, but the fact that you go a little bit deeper and, and you're totally right. Like I've seen certain trainings and you get little snippets, but you don't get the full picture. So I think that's a great value for anybody that's joining up into that. Uh, okay. So I'm kind of, I, I kind of jumped again earlier, but I wanted to go back a little bit more to, um, to the land and wholesaling and things like that, that you're doing currently. So I haven't gone through a land development. There's two things here with this, actually, let me frame it up for you. <laughs> uh, one is the, the land development, you said you're kind of slowing down on because of the interest rates and the bond rates, things like that. When do you see that kind of taking a turn to maybe come back to another cycle where you feel a little bit more bullish on it? We'll start there. It's, it's honestly very hard to say because that business model was about adding value by doing the engineering design and getting the approvals done. The national builders have plenty of backlog of land for a rainy day mm -hmm. when the interest rates are high. So they don't exactly have this urgency to keep the machine churning and buy expensive land, not when they have this backlog that they bought 10 years in advance. So the only other thing to do at that stage, if I wanted to dive into it, would be either to find local developers who won't pay me as much, but are still pretty cool to work with. And they're fun deals at the end of the day. I'm doing two right now, three right now, and they're great. But really the big money was on the entitlements. So I can keep doing that model if I like. As far as when the market's going to be best again, I don't know if we're ever gonna see a day where the interest rates were hovering between two and 3%, at least not yeah. for a very long time. Yeah, totally. Okay, well, that's great to know. I, I, I didn't even think about the big developers, but having a, a backstock of land, essentially, totally makes sense that they're gonna stockpile it. Yeah, so just for one caveat though, I just it just kind of dawned on me. I think that is probably very likely the case, particularly for residential land where we're doing single family houses because mm. the big builders just want to buy finished lots. I think there is a different opportunity for this particular business model when you get into different types of zoning. So what I might do if I really wanted to hop in after this again, I would probably pursue something where I could find land and maybe rezone it to something like multifamily or yeah. rezone it to commercial because that value add is substantial and there would be buyers for something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Multifamily, especially right now with just the way the market is, you know, renters versus buyers and things like that, affordable Multi housing. Yeah, multifamily is hot. And then again, you know, for anybody who's listening, like, oh my God, Jeff just gave away the secret sauce. Well, <laughs> not exactly because it still might take you 12 months to get the rezoning complete. So just, you know, for context, it, it's not like this super easy thing of lock it up and then two weeks later you're getting a million dollar assignment fee. That's not how this works. Yeah. It's a slow churn. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, I did want to go into a little bit, just a high level, like you, you did mention the timeline for land is longer. What does that look like? Because I actually, a couple months ago, I had potential land opportunity with a I was actually looking at the home 
and I don't know if you remember this, but I sent you a, a DM about this um, in Oklahoma. And there was a, I want to say it was three acres or something like that behind the the property or behind the home. And it was separated. So we were talking about it a little bit. At that point, I had no idea what to do with land. So I was kind of in the similar situation to where you were with your first deal. Yeah. And I was just reaching out, trying to get an idea. And it's, it, it is very different. So what does that look like? for start to finish at a high level, you know, like timeline and things that you have to go through. Yeah. So first, you know, what I recommend, because I, I get DMs all the time of people saying, Jeff, take a look at this land, take a look at this land. Can't you just tell me what it looks like? It only take you four seconds. Like, well, when you got 10,000 people stacked back to back, I only got 24 hours in the day. But the best piece of advice I go is like, look, it doesn't have to be rocket science. Just zoom out on satellite view. And just ask, is anybody building anything around here? Can I reasonably see a neighborhood getting parked here? Can I reasonably see a multifamily getting put here? Or is this really just a pipe dream? I mean, seriously, like I'll get stuff where people say, Jeff, it's two acres and it's right here and it's right for a multifamily. I go, dude, this is the middle of Alaska. There's more <laughs> elk out here than people. What are you talking about? <laughs> Could you put a multifamily? Yeah. Is anybody going to live there? No, what are we doing? So, you know, and, and I kind of, I'm, I have a kind of dry sense of humor, but seriously, like that's step one. What, what can you reasonably say could be here? And it really is as simple as just pulling like a half mile radius and say, is there a multifamily in this half mile? Is there another residential community in this half mile? If the answer is no, the nearest town is five miles out, or even if the nearest town is one mile out, that really is going to be too far for it to be true development grade. So I think it's right to preface it with that. If you got a neighborhood and it's literally bordering, I mean, dude, that thing is right. Like now is the time. So just a little context. Now, as far as the timeline is concerned, it depends on the extent of which you are willing to take really the engineering and design. Most developers, they, here's what they are terrified of. Developers are terrified of purchasing property and then finding out that they couldn't build what they originally wanted to. So the way this works is the reason that contract is such a long duration, and some of your audience is like, why would anybody agree to six months or 12 months out? Well, it's because the developers are paying an unbelievable amount of money. But the point is the developer would rather pay a lot of money and have the time to work with the jurisdiction and make sure the rezoning is going to get approved than to take on a piece of land and then realize the property doesn't qualify for that rezoning. Or politically, the counselors just say, we don't care that it could be rezoned that way. Our constituents hate everything about this project you're proposing. And now they're trapped. So really what happens in about the first three months or so, this is what's called the feasibility period. They're doing surveys, geotechnical studies, some early preliminary plats. And then really over the next few months, whether it's three, four, five, six, or 12, is going through the specific engineering design, rezoning, making sure the town can actually accommodate such a big load of product that's being brought. Because we're doing a project, it's going to be 200 acres, and the town is not particularly large. It's not Houston. Houston could absorb it like that. This town's a little bit outward. It's not tiny, but it's not huge. But if you're bringing in 400 homes all of a sudden, it's not as simple as just putting in roads. Does the town have enough sewer capacity? 
Does it have water capacity? What about a school? Like you're going to have all these kids here. Where are they going to go? Do you have enough fire department service? What about the police department? Like all of these things have to be addressed with the towns in order to make sure this development is successful and not just this thing out here that the people aren't serviced correctly. And that's just page one. Right. <laughs> Man. Well, yeah, I mean, you said it earlier. I can't remember exactly what you said, but the the amount of the assignment fee is tied directly to the, the size of the problem. Correct. And you just went into why the assignment fees are so large. <laughs> like you really broke it down. Who would have like no average person's gonna think of all of those different things. And so it really takes that experience and skill to understand those different pieces. So thanks for breaking that down. That's way more um, than I even thought myself. So yeah. And and again, it, it, it really cross references with like, how big is the thing we're dealing with? You know, if it's yeah. a 10 acre plot of, you know, 30 houses, probably not a catastrophe. Still, the jurisdiction has to be involved. When you got this humongous thing, now it's a much bigger problem to solve. And there is also something to be said where most people start out in single family houses and then kind of, you know, the advice generally is, well, graduate to multifamily. It's the same amount of work. There's just more zeros behind it. It's the same thing in big land development. One acre or 100 acres, it's relatively the same amount of work and research on zoning and houses and all this other stuff. There's just more zeros behind it. And that's why these paydays can be so significant. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. Um, so I wanted to kind of pick your brains about just kind of like going back to when you were in your uh, engineering job and when you were starting these real estate uh, buying, like you said, you were rent doing rentals and things like that. What really, like, what was that like? Uh, I'm trying to, I want to connect with the listeners out there that are ready to start something, but they're not quite sure. Like, you know, I think a lot of listeners out there in a W2 that they're okay with, like they like it, but they want more. Like you were saying, like, what was that like for you to take that first step and, and really start continually moving forward towards your goals? Yeah. I mean, at one point it's, you know, you can do a bunch of research, you can listen to the podcast, you can read the books. At some point you got to pull the trigger and just start making calls and just to see what happens. And just to accept that there's a good chance you're going to screw up those calls Matter of fact, I guarantee it. Like when I first started calling, I'd come home from work and I'd be literally shaking as I was starting to make these cold calls to foreclosure at the time because I wasn't experienced yet. I didn't exactly right. know what I was about to say. We all start there. And so that's the key is get the ball rolling and be consistent about it. Don't just call one day, take the week off. Oh, you know, maybe I'll get back to it next Wednesday. You got to be consistent after it. And then the other thing is to constantly ask yourself, okay, where is it in the process that is my bottleneck? What is the thing that is holding me back from achieving something? So for me, one of my weaknesses, and I should have addressed this a bit more aggressively before, is I kind of avoided the underwriting and rehab work. To be frank, I kind of avoid it right now. Fortunately, <laughs> I have some partners who are willing to help me. But it's always something that I've been bothered by because of my engineering background. If our calculations were off, bad things would happen. And so I always had this little bit of fear in the back of my head. Instead of going forward and saying, look, 
I'm putting this under contract. What is truly the worst that could happen? The worst that can happen is maybe I lose 50 or 100 bucks on an option fee. It's the cost of doing business. But I'm going to learn so much every time I put something under contract. Maybe it's worth that extra amount. I mean, probably a lot of people have spent a bunch of money on mentorships and skip tracing and lists and systems and all this stuff. And we can talk about that in a second. But at some point, you need to put it under contract and just be mindful. If you lose 100 bucks and it didn't go well, hopefully that's $100 worth of education that is way more valuable than maybe a lot of other things you spent your money on. Like every time I signed up one of those land development deals, even if they didn't go through, we learned so many things along the way. Yeah, everything has a learning opportunity. And again, going back to growth mindset, you can say you failed, or you can take it as an opportunity. Yeah, I found I found another way that didn't work. I'll do yeah. differently next time. Yeah, Thomas Edison. There you go. <laughs> How many times did he mess up the light bulb? <laughs> yeah, you, you failed like a hundred times. Like, no, I found a hundred ways that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so. I, a couple things that just wanted to pull out from that is, you know, you were talking about consistency and things like that. And I think the one thing that I always tie back to is like, you have to commit, right? And to be consistent, you have to be committed. And what is, you know, as a, as a person wanting to start, I mean, you kind of have to identify what, what it, this, what you're doing this for. Like, why am I going to commit and be consistent and put in these reps and fail and learn and do all these things that it's going to be hard? <laughs> so, like, I, I think that's just one thing for everybody to kind of take note of. But I also wanted to ask, what's your reason for, for pushing through when you had those challenges? Like, what what is your motivator? Yeah. So, you know, th this is the question of you have to have a why if you're going to endure this for the long haul. Now, I don't think that everyone is required to have a why as in, I'm going to save the world. Like, I don't think everyone has something that reasonably extreme. Or like, I don't have children, for example. I'm not married. I, I don't have like these very significant family whys either. So what do I draw on? I have to draw on something like, I want the best life for myself. And if I don't succeed here, well, then where else? Because I know where I was before, where I felt like I was just killing time. And I don't want that life again. I don't want to feel like I'm just killing time every day, waiting for the clock to strike midnight on my life. Now, the other key that I have to also remind myself is I am far more successful when I have written this down in a notebook and I read it every day. I notice when I skip days of reading it, I am not as productive. So when I look at it, I say, this is my goal for my life. This is my goal for my business. This is goal spiritually and all the rest of it. Then I am much more productive in that day. Nice. I love that. So, so you have that written down, just the same thing. Like you're just, you have it there, like a poster kind of like, you just like look at it every morning. I mean, it's, it's several pages long because okay. I, I wanted to go into detail. Like this is what I want. This is what I want for my life. So it's, it's not just a three bullet point thing. Okay. It is really getting into it. Nice. I like that. Cool. Um, well, I, I think we're coming up on time here in a minute. And I wanted to give you a chance if there's anything else you want to share with the listeners uh, 
about whatever it may be about what we talked about. Yeah, open floor. I, I, yeah, <laughs> thanks. I, I just want to say, guys, like I was talking about before, I, I tell this to my students all the time. Like, seriously, when I got started, I, I was literally shaking on the phones. And, and now I'm in the sub two closer competition. I won the previous one a couple of years ago. I'm probably the favorite to win right now. The point I want to make is, okay, humble brag, I'm, I apologize. But the point I really want to make is that if you're starting now and that's your feeling, like I'll never be as good as Jeff. I'll never be as good as Pace. I'll never be as good as whoever it is. Don't let that discount yourself from pursuing being a closer. Like just because you're not good now doesn't mean you can't be. How many of you were good at fractions and algebra when you first walked in the door as a kid? I'd wager to say zero of you. I didn't know you could add letters together. That sounded ridiculous. That sounded like a scam. But now you get to the end of it and you're like, oh, yeah, I, I completely understand that. And I think a lot of people particularly take what they, what they think might be their avatar, like a connector or something. And the connector, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not the easy way out. Like, all I got to do is introduce people and network and I get paid. That sounds great. But that's not truly what you need to be doing in the moment. Like, for me doing closing, I don't love doing closing every day. There's some days I absolutely enjoy the heck out of it. I, and I love negotiating some of these big land development deals. There are other days where I'm on the phone with some of these sellers. I'm going, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? So, you know, don't think that just because you don't feel you have all the skills, all the capabilities or even all the enjoyment of being a closer, like, well, I'll, I'll just never do that. I'll never even get on the phone. Like that's selling yourself short. And really what you want to avoid, guys, is don't avoid stuff because it's hard. Don't let that be an excuse of, well, I just don't like talking to people. Well, then learn, learn the skills because it's what's necessary. Like, again, for me, I, some, I, I think, you know, I probably could have gotten a lot faster in this business if I hadn't avoided the work of learning underwriting and comping, and I was just avoiding it. And I could have gone way faster, been way more confident if I had just sucked it up and learned it. Was I wrong to avoid the, what, integrator underwriter avatar? No, that was probably just dumb on my part and just me making an excuse for something I just didn't want to do. Until you find the right partner who maybe is amazing at it, but don't avoid it just because you don't like it at first. That's the way to end it. <laughs> oh man thank you so much for the time today um i do have one final question it's always a random question at the end so for you okay. uh i'd like to know what is your favorite recent star wars series so yeah, outside of, you know, obviously the classic trilogy and everything is, is going to be up there. But like a, the series, like on Disney or um, some of the newer ones. Okay. So I think I, re I really got a kick out of The Mandalorian because that was far and away different. It, it doesn't particularly involve the Jedi. It's this other kind of culture clash. It's, it's very, very interesting. Um, I also am a big fan of any series that involve character development. And I feel like you see that in Mando. What yeah. I would argue is Disney needs to suck it up and just do a Luke Skywalker series and get it over with. It's what the people want. <laughs> just give the people what they want. Yes, <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> I agree with Mando for sure. Um, and I would say 
as a side note, the Boba Fett series, the only good episodes were when Mandalorian was in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's a good, solid choice there for sure. <laughs> well, I'm glad we agree on the important things because that's really right. what it's about. <laughs> right. All right. Well, Jeff, thanks for coming on and just sharing so much great information with people and really just an honor to have this time with you and talk to you. So thank you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Everybody else, thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.